We good now? You guys have seen Titanic. Maybe you haven't. What's that? Yeah. It's it's a movie. Uh, it was kind of a big it was kind of a big deal. It has this song in it. It got played a lot. Anyhow, I've got mixed feelings about Titanic. I only saw it once. I probably should see it again. Um, but if you haven't seen it, there, there's these two streams in the movie, uh, two threads that, that run and course their way through the, uh, the plot of the movie. On, on the one hand, you've got this love story between Leonardo DiCaprio's Jack and Kate Winslet's Rose. So that's one stream that runs through the movie. Um, the other thread, which I actually liked better, um, is this thread of these, these snapshots of these different lives. They're all coming together on this great voyage, and, and they all share together in this great tragedy. Uh, it contrasted these poor lowlifes like Jack and, and Ernest Wayfarers. There was the pompous old money and the overzealous new money, the musicians, the crew. They all had stories. Some of them had much, some of them had little. But for many of them, their fates were exactly the same. They were destined for the icy Atlantic waters. And, and while there were advantages for some, uh, there was this great equalizer in their demise. However they boarded the boat, whatever deck they boarded on, however they passed their time on the transcontinental cruise, if they didn't find a lifeboat, it was the Atlantic. And more than two-thirds of the passengers, somewhere between 1,500 and 1,600 people, give or take, uh, died in that disaster. And to be sure, the better ticketed passengers, those who were more likely to be well off, fared better. But once they hit that frozen water, the Atlantic didn't care. It didn't care about their social status, it didn't care about their wealth, it didn't care about their class, it didn't care about their ticket. Many passengers found that their resources in that moment that just minutes, hours earlier, were so valuable, were, were suddenly worthless, useless, and no benefit to them at all. It's not often in life that we can so starkly see our, our shared humanity. Um, that, that those who are different than us uh, are exactly like us. Our world makes so much of class, of money, of power, of skin color, of citizenship, of nationality, and, and so on. And we spend our lives navigating ourselves comfortably into a satisfactory social circle. Um, we're maybe on the other hand, we're desperately trying to push ourselves into a new one, a higher rung or we awkwardly mingle between them, trying to find our place. But James has a different message for us this morning. And we could sum it up this way. In James 1, 9 through 11, I think James's point that he is trying to get through to us Christians is that a Christian's great satisfaction is that the Christian's 
status is situated in Christ. A Christian's great satisfaction is that the Christian's status is situated in Christ. And, and James unpacks this idea by examining our satisfaction from two different but identical changes in status. And, and then James offers an implicit warning for those who miss it. So let's, let's take a look at that. Let's look at these, these two different and yet, in, in a strange way, identical changes in status. And, and the first change in status is uh, pretty obvious. It's the, it's the exaltation of the lowly. We see this uh, in verse 9. So verse 9 reads, and I, am, I, am, uh, I had a weird week this week. I am all over the place. I don't even have my, my Bible up here. Um, so verse 9, James encourages that the lowly boat brother boasts in his exaltation. Which is a strange thing to say. That's not something we usually brag about. We don't usually boast or brag about uh, our exaltation. In fact, we don't usually talk about boasting or bragging much in the Christian faith at all. We usually say that's a, a bad thing to do. But it's routinely used in Scripture that, that Christians are to brag. There are certain things that Christians are encouraged to brag or boast or, or to be proud of or find their satisfaction in. And to unpack this, let's look, a, look at a couple key words. There, there are, are, are two words that we need to kind of pay attention to in this verse. Lowly is the first one. Lowly is a, is a person who, who is humble or has been humbled by external circumstances. And, and it kind of crosses over into the sense of poverty. So they've been brought low and so they, they, they're of course poor. And that's probably the, the basic thrust of the idea here is that the lowly brother is a Christian who is impoverished. And the reason why we think that that's the, the thrust here is because it's contrasted with the rich brother. So there's not a contrast if the rich is lowly and the poor is lowly. It's, so this is a, the, a poor Christian. And this is probably a significant percentage of uh, James's audience. As, as we said, these, these Jews were pushed into the diaspora uh, for the reasons of these externalities that they had little control over. And for a lot of Jewish Christians who might have been forced to flee Judea, to flee the immediate areas around Jerusalem uh, in the wake of persecution, this would have rung very true. We know, again, that a wave of persecution broke out um, after the execution of Stephen at the hands of a guy named Paul. And Christians were forced to flee. Persecutions came upon the Roman Empire and in and around Jerusalem uh, at various points of time in the first and second and third centuries. And so this probably is not an uncommon situation. Probably many of James' readers are lowly. But this term, lowly, does connote more than just a lack of money. Uh, this person is deemed as having little regard, an, an insignificant status in society to go along with their poverty. In the ancient world, I, I, I suspect it was probably difficult to separate these ideas completely. Perhaps even at all. Um, in other words, did a person have low social status because they were poor? 
or were they poor because they had low social status? In some ways, it's an inevitable circle that it's difficult to get out of. Even today, it's difficult for people who are brought up in, in a low economic status. Even though our, our freedom to move up those, those, those ladders of society is much easier than it was in the ancient world, it's still very, very difficult. And one of those, your social status can lead to an economic uh, prison which continues to keep you in what society would deem a low rung of the social ladder. And so it is a vicious cycle. And yet, James says that this person who is stuck in such a vicious cycle should boast about his exaltation. What does he mean by that? It's not a very common word, but it's a word that every other time in the New Testament, when, when, when the writers of the New Testament use this, this idea, it, uh, it, it could be translated as high position, or, or he uh, should boast in his highness, or the height to which he has reached. Everywhere we see this in the New Testament, it is referencing to where God is, where Jesus is enthroned, where the Father sends the Spirit from, where Christians will be brought up to. And so what James is telling these poor and lowly Christians is that in Jesus Christ, they have been raised up to the very throne of Christ. They have gained, to use Paul's terminology, an inheritance in the kingdom of God. And so... What James is saying is that the person who is humble and who is lowly and is poor and is a Christ follower, he calls him brother, enjoys the status of a heavenly address. He enjoys the glories and the riches of the kingdom of heaven that he will inherit fully when Jesus comes. You know, every year it seems that we are given uh, in the news and the media fresh rags to riches stories to celebrate. And uh, very often those come in the terms of uh, professional sports. Browns fans are already looking forward to that day. It's called draft day. Um, in, that, in the end of April, we're going to see a bunch of very talented college athletes, many from impoverished and lowly backgrounds, thrust into the national spotlight, dressed in the most expensive clothing they've ever worn in their lives, they're going to have their names called out so that they can don an NFL team cap and receive a rookie contract and a signing bonus. And assuming the Browns don't trade down, whoever they take with that number one pick stands to make nearly $20 million just putting pen to paper, maybe more. Many of these young men, as we know, grew up in, in poor or lower middle class uh, households. And, and while they may have some familiarity to us as NCAA stars, by and large, they are unknowns. There, there are so many players in the NCAA that only the, the, the most active fans can keep track of all these guys. But overnight, they become celebrities. Overnight, they have money. They have status. They have prestige. And you see it on their smiles on draft day. When I uh, moved to Cleveland... I uh, got a new phone number. I wanted a, a Cleveland area code, obviously. 
I know that's not as common anymore. I call you guys and you've got New York, Oregon, Washington phone numbers. But, you know, in 2006 when I came here, I still wanted a, a Cleveland phone number. So I was given a Cleveland phone number. I was given a, a Cleveland phone number that obviously had been recycled and disregarded by somebody who had, you know, given up their, their phone contract and moved on to someone else. I was given the uh, phone number of Rob Sims, uh, a guard for the Detroit Lions. Um, it took a while to figure that out. Uh, I was getting all kinds of text messages uh, for Rob and uh, you know, phone calls for Rob. And it was getting annoying uh, every once And they started to peter out after a while, but I kept getting messages for Rob. Uh, uh, Rob apparently grew up in Macedonia. He uh, went to Nordonia and uh, went to Ohio State. He was drafted by the Seahawks. I finally started to put this all together when I got a message from ESPN that wanted to interview me about the big trade that they thought was good for me. Um, and, and so th that, then I started realizing Rob is more famous than I, than I thought he was. Um, and I'm starting to figure out why all these people don't have Rob's phone number anymore too, right? Rob has apparently gone on to become a star, a, a little bit of a celebrity. I mean, a guard in the NFL is not necessarily the, the best known guy, but uh, he's got money, he's got prestige, and I can only imagine he's got a lot of guys from high school and, and college who want to hang out with Rob, who, you know, want to still be around Rob, and Rob's like, I'm done with those guys uh, because I know what they want. Uh, what, what finally tipped it off is I finally, um, uh, th I think the last message was I got a, a message from, from some guy who wanted to hang out. They were going to be in Detroit. And for the game, you know, and, and that's when I, then I started figuring out, okay, which team he was on, the trade, you know. Okay, it was a, there was a trade from Seattle to Detroit, and, and I put it all together. And we figured out it, was, it must be Rob Sims. Um, but, but here it is, you know, he's, he's rich, he's, he's powerful now, he's got prestige, he's got people who want to spend time with him, and he's got to completely change his life as a result of it. Uh, there, there's people he apparently wanted to disassociate with. And... Uh, that, that's kind of understandable. These guys, though, on draft day, you know, unless they're the Johnny Manziels who, who come from rich family backgrounds to begin with, their lives are completely changed in a moment. James says that for us who are poor or who are lowly, who come to follow the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, our status is changed in a moment. It's not the status that goes from, uh, you know, working class background to making millions of dollars for three to eight years in the NFL. It is the status of someone who has nothing in the eyes of this world, but has everything for eternity in the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ. The second change in status is the humiliation of the rich. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, verse 10, and the rich in his humiliation. We don't like to boast much. We tell our kids not to boast. We've been taught up not to brag. But this is a really odd one to brag about. We usually never brag about our humiliation. How and why does a rich person boast in his humiliation? Well, there are some who think that this is 
a non-Christian that James is talking about. So that James is contrasting the poor brother, the poor Christian, with some rich guy out there who's probably causing them trouble. Because back in the ancient world, you know, I'm sure this doesn't sound anything like today, the rich sometimes cause trouble for the poor. That doesn't happen anymore. Um, and, and there's... The idea here would be then, if, if that's what James meant, then James is being sort of ironical. He's saying that the poor, you poor Christians, should, should brag and boast about being lifted up into the realm of Jesus Christ. You rich people, you should brag about the fact that you're going to be brought low. And he's, he's being ironical. He's, he's, not, he's being a little sarcastic. And it's possible that that's what he's getting at, but I think it's much more likely, for a lot of reasons... Um, and I won't bore you with them all, but I think it's much more likely that this rich person that James is talking to is a Christian also. Uh, in, in the circle of Jewish believers to whom James is writing, we see even elsewhere in the letter that there are rich Christians in this group. And, and it would make sense that James would want to say something to both of them. The grammar in the passage suggests he's talking to Christians here. You don't want a grammar lesson. But the, 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 the idea is uh, there, uh, there were rich and there were poor Christians in this group. And so... I think that this is what James is, is saying. The humiliation that he's talking about here, this is, the, this is the same word. We actually talked about this a couple weeks ago when we were in our Christmas series and we were looking at Mary and Mary's song. Sometimes it's called the Magnificat. And, and it says uh, that, that she was humble. And we talked about the fact that the word really almost means that, that she was humiliated. It's just the same word here. So it, it certainly can be used of faithful people. For us, maybe even more significantly than the fact that it can be used for Mary, it's used to describe the Messiah in Isaiah 53. It's the passage that's, that's being read by, maybe you know the story, the Ethiopian eunuch who is on his way back from the festivals in Jerusalem and he meets the evangelist, Philip. And the passage that the Ethiopian eunuch, a, a Jewish Ethiopian man, uh, is reading is, why did the Gentiles uh, rage? Sorry, not <laughs> looking at the, the wrong passage here. Not, not, uh, uh, not, not Acts chapter uh, 4, Acts chapter 8, like a sheep he was led to slaughter. That's the Isaiah 53 passage. And like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth. And so Jesus' own uh, crucifixion, his trial, his mockery, his beatings that he endured are described as his humiliation. In Acts 4, which what I wanted to move to, we see that the apostles are arrested. The apostles are arrested because they're preaching the good news about Jesus Christ. And they're brought before the Jewish authorities. And for a number of reasons, the Jewish authorities determined that it's better to let them go. 
And it says this in verse uh, 21. When they, meaning the Jewish council, had further threatened him, they threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. When they were, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And then it says elsewhere that they rejoiced because they were counted worthy of suffering for the name of Jesus Christ. There's a glory and there's a boasting in being worthy to share in the sufferings of our Savior. If the one who is above all, through whom all the worlds of this universe were created and put into being, if Jesus Christ, the, the king over all, was humiliated for our sake, then how much more should we be thrilled to be considered worthy of such an honor? And if, as we suggested was possible a couple weeks ago, these Jewish Christians are scattered abroad because of persecutions or other external pressures, it could be very well true that these rich Christians that James is talking to here have lost or are in the process of losing their accumulated wealth. James says these things must happen as sure as the flower of the grass is fading and dying and passing away and temporary, so these things must happen. So which camp are you in? Are you the, the lowly brother or are you the rich brother? On one hand, it doesn't matter. You see, they, they have completely opposite fates. From James's perspective, the, the lowly brother is exalted. And the rich brother is humiliated, is brought low. But from another standpoint, their fate is identical. The poor brother, the lowly brother, is raised up to the status of of Jesus Christ, where the rich brother is brought low to the status of Jesus Christ. There, there is no resurrection of Jesus Christ without him first suffering and being tortured and dying. In the same way, Jesus says that anyone who would follow him must take up his cross and come after him in Mark chapter 8. And so the only way that you achieve any sort of resurrection living is by going through a cross-carrying death first. There are two sides to the same coin. And so we see that these believers have had their status completely altered from the way the world looks at them, rich, powerful, important, significant, 
James says, who cares? You will suffer and carry your cross as Christ carried his cross. Praise God for it. That should be your great boast. That should be your great brag in this world. You're poor. You're insignificant. No one knows who you are. You've never accomplished anything important. You're in a vicious cycle of poverty. There's, there's not an escape to get out of it. James says, who cares? You've been raised up to the throne of Christ. You are a child of the kingdom. You will inherit the riches of that kingdom. Rejoice, brag, and boast in that this world is temporary and coming to an end. But James offers a warning implicitly for the rich. In verse, the second part of verse 10, he says, the rich rejoice in their humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. And then in verse 11, he drives this home. He wants to sit on this for a moment. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. See, on one side of the coin, it doesn't matter whether you're poor and lowly or you're rich and in the eyes of the world because your status is the same in Jesus Christ. But I do remember somewhere Jesus saying that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Riches of this world are alluring. They are terrible idols, terrible masters, and they suck us in. And I think that is why James needs to dwell on that half of the equation a little bit more here. Israel is a thin strip of land on the edge of what you might have learned in social studies is the fertile crescent, which isn't particularly fertile. It just looks a lot more fertile compared to the mountains and desert that surround it. The cradle of civilization, though. The Mediterranean Sea is on the west, the Sinai Desert to the south, and the Arabian Desert to the east. And, and when the east wind blows across that wide Arabian Desert, especially in the late spring and summer, I understand that it can be very hot, very uncomfortable. In fact, there's a special wind that blows from time to time that sometimes this actual term is used to describe that wind. And whether that's what James has in mind or not, we're not sure. But it would fit the bill. It's a, it's a wind that blows across the Arabian Desert and blows constantly for somewhere between a few hours and a few days. It's incredibly dry with humidity, like 10% or lower, and incredibly scorching hot. And it does crazy stuff uh, across North Africa and through Europe when it blows. But you can imagine the place that's due west of that east wind, it wrecks havoc. A wind like that, especially under a scorching noonday sun, would quickly wilt a delicate flower. 
And often that east wind features throughout the Old Testament as a sign of God's activity, uh, even God's judgment. It burns up and blows away what is in its path. And, and we see a, this combination of the scorching wind and the, and the burning hot sun in Jonah chapter 4 when, when God uses it to torment the prophet Jonah. You might remember the story. Jonah has preached in Nineveh for the Ninevites to repent. And then feeling really good about himself, he goes up on a high place to look down on the city of Nineveh and wait for God to destroy them. Sort of a, a perverse um, desire on Jonah's part. And God sends this hot sun and, and this scorching wind to make him bitterly uncomfortable. To teach him a lesson about his grace and his goodness and his desire to see them in Nineveh saved. Jonah, like this hypothetical rich man, was a believer, though. But he was holding on to things that were not to his benefit, things that did not line up with God and God's will and the things that make God happy. And so here James tells us that in the midst of life's pursuits, in the rich man's journeys, in the, in the course of his life, this passing away can come upon him, and it can come upon him suddenly. It can be unexpected. Paul writes to Timothy in, in 1 Timothy 6.17, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. I don't know how Rob Sims is doing, um, I hope well, but we know it doesn't always end that way for these guys. Uh, too many of these guys found out just how fast the east wind and blazing suns can scorch away those riches. In the 30 for 30 documentary Broke, uh, director Billy Cohen examines the, the plague of professional athletes who have gone broke. Stars like Andre Rison and, and, and our own Bernie Kosar are featured in the, the film. For various and sundry reasons, too many of these guys leave professional sports or very soon after they leave professional sports end up broke and penniless. And it's not just professional players. Uh, according to the, the um, National Endowment for Financial Education, which is a thing, um, most people... About 70% of people who come into sudden, unexpected riches are broke in just a few years. And that's not to say anything of fortunes that were wiped out in the Great Recession or Bernie Madoff's schemes or even just a sudden and shocking health crisis. Even people who are just ordinarily living and trying to make ordinary, plain life decisions can discover that their wealth is soon gone. In a survey of, of millionaires done by CNBC, 44% claim to be middle class, while another 40% claim to be merely upper middle class. 
Now, we could, we could quibble about the difference between income streams and accumulated wealth over time and, and, and social status, but at the end of the day, we're still looking at a substantial number of Americans who are doing really well for themselves and have some significant cognitive dissonance about how well they're doing for themselves. In fact, to put this in perspective, households earning a bit over $112,000 in, in 2012, I don't know what the, the current rate is, but it's pretty, pretty recent, $112,000 households, so husband and wife, husband and wife, kids, just husband, just wife, whatever, would put a, a household in the top fifth of all income earners in this country. Now granted, not everyone bringing in $120,000 has a lot of accumulated wealth because Americans also have a, a penchant for uh, spending their rear ends off. We don't like to save. And so it's amazing how much money people can make and still wind up having very little. But even if we're generous and, and, and call it middle class, let's keep in mind that there was not much middle class in James' day. In, in, in the first century, in and around Palestine, and, and probably through much of the Roman Empire, but, but certainly in and around Palestine, there was a very few sort of aristocratic uh, royalty-type positions at the top. Almost nothing. And then you had the sort of working poor, Maybe your, your farmers and fishermen and, and carpenters and, and stonemasons. And then you just had the absolutely destitute. You know, there, there's, so we Americans like to call ourselves middle class. That's just like we're all middle class. We're either striving to be middle class or we are middle class. Very few of us would actually say we're rich even if we are. But that category didn't even exist in James' day. So I don't know what he would have called us. Maybe it just depends on our, our definition of, of rich. But it's fair to wonder, when we read something like verse 11, I think our tendency is to say to ourselves, yeah, those rich people need to be careful. And I think we need to ask ourselves honestly whether verse 11 maybe doesn't apply to that other guy, but whether it applies to me, whether it applies to you. I don't know that James could have even understood our definitions of poverty in this country, whereas a huge percentage of those who are legitimately in poverty in this country, I'm not trying to to minimize that, but they have a place to stay. They might even have it to themselves. In other words, they're not having to share a dwelling with a large extended family necessarily. With, you know, grandparents on both sides and parents on both sides, and, you know, because that's ancient world worked a little bit more communally that way. Uh, not to belittle it, but, but the poor in our country have means of transportation other than their feet, most of them. Whether it's a, a bicycle or a bus pass or a huge percentage of our poor in this country do even own their own car. 
Not many poor who would have had, you know, horses and donkeys at their disposal in the ancient world. And so what I'm saying is let's not quickly glance over something like verse 11 and assume that that refers to the other guy. But let's ask ourselves how much of it applies to us. Because I think it's part of our sort of American idolatry that even if we aren't rich, we're hoping to be rich. Even if we're not wealthy, and whether we say it or not, we're thinking one day we're going to be wealthy. We're thinking one day we're going to retire, and we're going to have this nice, you know, 401k built up. And we're not rich, we're middle class. But, you know, you know we want to have a few million dollars in the bank, at least, so that we can continue to a comfortable living in our 60s and 70s and 80s and, and 90s. So you can call it middle class. But maybe the real test is, if the sun were to rise and the east wind were to blow its scorching heat and the humidity were to dry up everything in your life, how much would your life change? If your savings were gone, and your income stream were gone. If your life would change a little tiny bit, then that either means you've got some really rich family that's going to take care of you, or you're probably actually poor the way James thought of poor in his day. But if that would be a big change in your life, then there's a good chance that you probably wouldn't have been recognizable as poor in first century Palestine. And it leads to questions like how much of our heart is really stuck on those things. There's a warning here. Again, as Paul said, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. You hear him? He's saying the same thing as James. For those of us in this room, I think most of us would not look poor in James's day. But the message is still the same. Your identity, my identity, is fundamentally in Jesus Christ. And that needs to be enough for us so that if all of it was taken away, your, your 401k was drained, your HSA was drained, you're fired from your job, you've got no income stream, your parents are gone and there's no one who's going to write you a check to cover your way of life. And all you've God to your name is the shirt on your back and Jesus Christ. Is that enough for you? Is Jesus enough? So this is why it's harder for the rich to get into the kingdom than to go for a camel to go through the eye of the needle, right? Because 
See, a poor person who doesn't have anything in this world doesn't have the trappings of the things of this world to this, in the same way that someone with many, many possessions do. The funny thing about Americans is 99% of the very poor in this country still have a whole lot of possessions, still have a whole lot of stuff that they wouldn't want to get rid of. And those things still hold us down. We live for them. We fight for them. We go to work to make money to buy them. And I'm not saying that all those things are wrong. Don't, don't hear that. I'm not saying you can't buy stuff. I'm not saying that you can't own stuff. I'm not saying you can't do things to make your life a little bit more comfortable. But what I am saying, what I think James is saying, is that at the end of the day, your status has to be in Jesus Christ. Because all of those things are fleeting. You will die, and you won't have any of them. You can stick your name on a building. You can leave a trust fund for your kids. But I guarantee you that wherever you go, heaven or hell, you won't be thinking about that building with your name on it. And you won't be thinking about the legacy you left for your children. It's gone. You don't live forever in this world the way it is now. James tells us that a Christian's great satisfaction is that his or her status is situated in Christ. So is your great satisfaction that your status is in Jesus Christ? Or are you still finding your great satisfaction in the things of this world? One of those is a Christian way of life. And the other one is the way of the world, no matter what name we place on it. And that's the warning that James has for us, and probably most of us who are rich. The good news, though, is that there is a Savior who came, who suffered, who bled, and died to purchase both the rich and the the poor to him to bring the two one to bring the two into one so that by his death on the cross we could be forgiven of our sins and find this great equalizer of our identity in Jesus Christ himself Jesus' disciples said wow who can be saved if it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle Jesus says Something that's true for every one of us. With man, it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Whether you're poor, whether you're rich, it is still impossible for you to find your way back to God. But through the blood of Jesus Christ and placing your faith in that, relying on that for your status and your salvation. God makes it possible. Let's pray. Father, I confess and we confess that way, way too often we are
consumed by the things of this world. Saving up for this, saving up for that, dreaming about that vacation, dreaming about what it's going to be like next year, two years, five years from now. We're straining and striving, God, for things that will fade away so quickly, never satisfied with the one thing that you offer us that never disappears and never dissipates our salvation and our status as children of the king. God, may we be absolutely satisfied, satisfied with your goodness, your greatness, and the place you've called us to. And God, I pray for those who've yet to place their lives down to carry the cross of your son, Jesus Christ, and find in him their refuge. That not in their worldly riches as much as their spiritual pride that you would humble them and bow them down before the cross of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.